1: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Brenda Belletti, translator of The Nature of Space by Milton Santos, published this year by Duke University Press. Dr. Belletti, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So, as I said in the introduction there, uh, I'm talking to a translator here, so, I'd like to start off and find out a little bit about the original author of the work you're translating. So, who was Milton Santos and why is he important to have uh, translated?
0: Well, Milton Santos is probably the most well known Brazilian geographer. Um, He's a Brazilian geographer and philosopher who. Had a tremendous influence not only on Brazilian geography, but on critical geography in general, I think in many languages across the world over the last several decades. But he is little known in the English speaking world because until very recently, his work had not been translated into English. Um, Santos's, Santos's work uh, addresses uh, regional development globalization, the theorization of space. He was born um, in the early part of the 20th century in Bahia in the northeast of Brazil, Um, you know, to a poor family in the interior. He was educated in Bahia and he became an advisor for the Brazilian government um, on regional planning. And I think it was in that work that he began to see all of the limitations of um, the the problems of modernist planning, and began to develop the critique that became so important and influential on development geography and critical geography in the decades to come. He um, was exiled from Brazil under the military dictatorship, and during that time he lived and worked in the U.S., in germany and france and so his work was in dialogue like was actively in dialogue (laughs) in real time with the geographic and work that was going on in all of those places and he was you know conceptually in dialogue with you know a century of continental philosophy in addition to all the work going on in latin america so his um his work his experience um Analyzing the regional development dynamics in Brazil, engaged in geography across the world, um, led to this body of work that has become very influential. And, um, you know, in American geography, he worked in the early 70s, he had a couple of publications that were translated in antipode. He worked with people like Neil Smith and Richard Pete. Um, but beyond those few publications, I think it's only been in the last couple of years that uh, geographers have been getting a sense of who he is because there has been a move to start to translate his work so that his influence can be understood more explicitly and also so that um, people can have direct access to that work. I think I would also add that, you know, because his work has been so formative in Brazilian geography, most um, Anglophone researchers working in Brazil have also been very influenced by his work because not only directly through studying him, but also because his students have been so influential in Brazilian uh, development geography in Brazilian critical geography in the geography of Brazilian um, social m- movements that a lot of the influence of his work has extended through that work into Anglophone geography as well.
1: Yeah, and this is this is very helpful to get this work translated so an English speaking audience can engage with it more easily. Because I've I've been doing the Portuguese course on Duolingo, but I'm not nearly at the level that I can read a, a complex academic <laughs> text yet. So, you know, this is is very helpful. So that brings us then to you. So tell us about who you are, your background, and how you ended up being the person to take on this project of. Translating Milton Santos.
0: Okay, well, I have a PhD in geography myself from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I did my dissertation research on struggles over extractive resources in the Brazilian Amazon during the commodity boom in the mid 2000s when global commodity prices were skyrocketing and a lot of the then progressive Latin American governments were growing. Their extractive resources development through partnerships with you know multinational corporations or by opening markets to those corporations you know much of what is still going on today. So I guess all of that is to say that I was and am a student of the dynamics of evolving global capitalism and the ways that that's linked up to and plays out through Brazilian like regional development and the visions for Brazilian regional development. And also a student of how people confront and attempt to overcome those rather totalizing dynamics. So through that work, I, you know, was a student of Santos's work, and my own work was very much informed by not only his work, but the work of many of his students. You know, some of the great Brazilian geographers of today, like Carlos Walter Porto Gonzalez, Arivaldo Oliveira, um, Fernando Manzano Fernandes, and others. Um, and so I encountered his work when I was doing my research in Portuguese, and as interest grew here in translating the important works, or many important works, in in philosophy and theory from Latin America, and Duke Press had the project to take on the translation of this book, I was really excited about it and decided to do it.
1: All right. So let's now get into a little bit about the, the content of the book for people that aren't familiar with uh, Milton Santos's work. So in the introduction, he says, quote, my explicit goal in writing this book is to produce a system of ideas that can serve as a point of departure for a descriptive and interpretive system of geography. So that that's a really ambitious goal <laughs> right there, right? That's a, a huge uh, thing to take on. So can you give us the kind of Cliff's notes like highlights of what are the major features of this system of geography that he develops and uh, explains in this book.
0: Yeah um I think you know I think that to start to try and understand what this system is that he's describing, it's worth looking at another part of the introduction where he talks about some of his frustrations with geography um, because I think that, a lot of the frustrations that he's expressing with geography in his introduction still arguably stand, at least in part, in the American university today. You know, and he says that one of the limitations of geography is that geographers, you know, and and this is these are generalizations. Of course, there are obviously clear exceptions, um, but often fail to rigorously theorize their disciplinary object, space. And as a result, geography can tend to lack the analytic concepts and methods that he thinks ought to define the discipline. And so he says, instead, um, geographers tend to draw concepts from other disciplines that are not adequate to their analysis, that function more as metaphors than as analytic frameworks, um, and that the field can then be subject to the whims of what's theoretically in fashion, Uh, you know, which at the time he's dealing with. You know, he's experiencing a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction with postmodernism, you know, and then he's saying that the field can tend towards description rather than explication. And and so he's like, on the one hand, lacking a clear disciplinary object can make geography very exciting and open, right, in its long disciplinary tradition it can arguably be the study of anything that happens on the face of the earth. And so geographers are often engaged in studying some of the most cutting edge subjects. Um, But he explains then, you know, why ultimately that analysis can be shallow because lacking a clear method and object scholarship can fall into, you know, I think what he, how he would characterize it would be like the, the promiscuous application of disparate frameworks to to describe particular situations in a way that just then like affirms the validity of that framework. Um, It's like methods in geography that he's frustrated with tend to be treated as the ways that we acquire information regarding the empirical, right? Through GIS surveys, ethnography, um, to which then we often only retroactively apply our theoretical frameworks. Right. So he's saying like geographic inquiry is reduced to a naive empiricism on the one hand and a disconnected and autistic theoreticism on the other that we try to reconnect. And so what he's trying to do then is saying what we actually need is a method for geography um, that would mean developing an interpretive framework adequate for apprehending the world or, you know, what he's talking about as "Quote unquote," the world is like the social totality that's in constant dialogue with that totality. So we need to have a framework that's itself in motion, transformed through a shifting practice of analysis and a shifting um, understanding of the object of analysis. You know, space. So, in other words, like I think, I would say that Santos's method is like deeply dialectic, right? He's trying to what he does in the book. Is he tries to enact um, a dialectical method for theorizing the concept of space by walking through a series of like approximations of all of its component analytic concepts. Right? He the book is set up to so the method is a method of analysis. The method is to is to constantly be attempting to identify all of the all of the concepts necessary to understand the world that we're studying. And in order to understand each of those concepts, we have to be constantly um, developing each of those concepts and then setting them into dialogue with the other concepts that follow. And it's by doing that, by looking at all these different analytic concepts, technique, intentionality, object, action, event, totality, territory, you know, he has many, many concepts in this book that he tries to, clarify um then he puts them in conversation with each other and then tries to put them into conversation with the world so that's how i would kind of describe his method
1: yeah and i think i actually from your little description there actually just as you were saying that kind of helped me understand what he's doing uh a little better because you're right that it is this dialectical kind of Approach that he walks you through in the book, and so it keeps circling around back to some of these same ideas. Uh, and it's it's not like a, a textbook where like you know you start from the foundations and establish that and then work forward uh, from there. And so that's a, a thing that we sometimes expect to see if somebody says, "Well, here's my big theoretical opus that's going to explain things." You know, we kind of expect it sometimes to to work in that foundational kind of way. And you get a little lost if it's not doing that, but you know, it's got this dialectical kind of movement to the way that he puts it together.
0: Um, Exactly. It's like, there's never like a, what is space? What is territory? What is, you know, there's no answer to any of those questions. It's more, he's demonstrating to you a practice for how you would approach those things that you have to kind of take on as, as a method
1: yeah so i'm like i'm trying to take notes as i'm reading it's like but he hasn't said exactly what that means yet it's like well that's that's what you get once you get through the whole thing you will you'll understand what it means um so let's then if we can dig into a few of these concepts that uh that he does use one of the the big ones is this sort of pairing of object and action and these two two ideas like bounce back and forth off of each other uh a lot through the book. So could you explain a little bit about how he's using these terms and, how the relationship between them works?
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to think if I need to talk about technique first, but okay, now let's, yeah, let's start. Okay. So let me, I'll start that answer over. So yes, right at the beginning of the book, he gives us a, a working definition, we could say, or a working conceptual definition of space which he says is an indissoluble set of systems of objects and systems of actions, right. Or an indivisible interdependent contradictory group of systems of objects and systems of actions that, um, form a framework, you know, in which our world unfolds. Um, and I think objects we could say, neither of these things for him, objects or actions can, like by definition, by the definition that he's given us exist on their own. Um, they have a no, no philosophical reality extracted from that relationality is what he's trying to say. Right. And so he says, but, um, objects then we could think of as like the, the things that exist in the world that visibly make up like landscape, um, right, like so, he says there are things like nat, and the world moves historically through from natural objects, things that are you know completely come from nature, um, like a you know I don't know a tree, through uh, a transformation of objects through their interaction with the social world over time to become more um, technical. So objects then are transformed through their relation to um, human beings and they actually become new things. Right. So we move from, you know, natural objects to technical ones. So you can imagine like natural objects are ones that would be completely produced by nature and technical ones would be ones that are completely produced by, uh, information like the computer, right. Today he he's constantly trying to set up a historical progression of these things for, for us also. So today we live in the world of like cybernetic objects. Um, but objects themselves uh, he understands as the crystallization of social forms. So within objects are contained all of these societal dynamics, right? So we could think about things like, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example of social forms uh, like law, custom, they give rise to particular uh, kinds of objects like property, right? And so, in that way, you can understand how the social conditions the creation of these material, our material reality. And then he says that material reality itself conditions uh, our social world, right? So, you know, the organization of property means that we interact in particular ways in our society. And then how are objects created? You know, objects are created through actions and actions for him aren't only like behavior directed towards a goal, right? Uh, like actions are things that human societies, uh, do to the world behaviors that they do to the world, but it's not only conscious behavior, right? That behavior itself is also always conditioned by a constellation of forces that is, um, material and social, right? A social structure and a social structure embodied in objects. Um, and so space for him is the relationship between all of those things, right? So, so you can see, hopefully you can see, I hope that isn't too convoluted a description, the way that objects are constantly the sort of expression of the sedimented history of um, human societal relations of the social totality, and that historical social totality is constantly conditioning um, the ways that we act. And that gives rise to this thing called space, um, which is nothing but these sets of relations.
1: Okay, and so he's got this what you know might seem like this kind of abstract theory uh going on that you've kind of laid out some of the the terms of but this is also in a way a very historically situated book because he's really interested in explaining how we got to the specific kind of world that we're living in at the time he's writing kind of the end of the 20th century the way that the world uh works and that historical trajectory is a big part of uh of what he's trying to do in the book. And so, you know, a lot of stuff has happened over the last couple decades uh, since he wrote the book and since he passed away. So I was wondering if you would be willing to venture some thoughts about how the things that he was writing about apply to our world now, a couple decades into the 21st century.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important question. I think that, um, I think that the importance, and this is kind of what I'm trying to think through today. I think that, that one of the really important contributions of the nature of space that actually differentiates it from some of the other work that we might be familiar with in this, you know, geographic project to theorize space is, is what I actually want to go back for a second to the first chapter and his introduction of this, um, concept of technique. Um, because i think that it it is his his use of technique that actually gives us an important tool for thinking about the world that we live in today um so in that first chapter he before he even dives into defining this you know this concept of space he starts by saying technique which he you know which is like a, a technica is the word that he uses and it it could be and it could be translated in different ways right it could be translated as technique some authors um, use, like Mumford, uses the word technics. Um, Murray Bookchin uses the, I think, the Greek techne, um, where, where, but many philosophers have tried to grapple with this idea um, of technique. Which is, not, which, which is a way to move away, like often today you hear us talking about technology, right? Especially today, and when we're talking about the 20th century, we're talking about technology, technological domination. Um, and this idea of technique uh, mandates that we not sort of separate out technology and fetishize technology as something that has the ability to move on its own. Right. Technique it situates technology in the web of social relations, in the web of principles um, through which the technological is created. Right. It's a it, it's the social it, it says that like technology emerges from a social formation. It's not, um, you know, the innovation of the innovation of tools. Right. Which is essentially what technology is. Right. When we think of technology, we think like stone tool to the computer. Doesn't happen independent of the social milieu, and so to, to fetishize technology as something that maybe you know happens on its own or is the result of competition or innovation is an idea that only um, emerges under capitalism, right? And so the work that that Santos is doing here is to sort of reembed technology in the world of the technical. Um, and to understand that, and to make this argument that it is through what he calls the shifting technical milieu that we, that we need to understand, you know, in a sense, the prehistory to this moment. Um, and so this, so he's constantly saying, like, he's saying, so if we look at history, we see... Um, He's constantly trying to sort of periodize history to say what are the major shifts that happen um, throughout human history in order to get to what he's dealing with, this question of globalization at the end of the 20th century, Um, the end of the 20th century and, you know, the beginning of the 21st century, ultimately. So he looks back into history and says, "Okay, all of these moments of innovation, right, from the tool to the machine to the the." cybernetics, these look like moments of technological um, transformation, but they're actually moments of, you know, of social transformation. And that's what the geographical milieu gives us, right? The, uh, a shifting understanding of the instrumental and social means that people utilize to realize their lives to produce space. So he's constantly um, doing this analytic, this historical analytic in terms of a shifting geographic milieu. Um, now he gets to the end of the 20th century and he says, we've moved from, you know, a natural system through a technical system through a techno scientific system, um, which he calls the technical scientific, scientific informational milieu, which he says is substantively different from all previous technical systems in that it's both, um, he says, today we live in a world where, um, The system that we live in, you know, our relations, our technologies, our social understandings are decontextualized, right? Meaning that it doesn't need to emerge from a local context in order to be embedded there, right? So I think that's an important concept. It's like, why does um, every coffee shop in every city look the same? You know, he says, because even though everyone might have a local coffee shop in their neighborhood, the the rationality that's leading to the creation of this coffee shop, right. Financialization, branding, you know, real estate development, all of these dynamics are not emerging from that local context. And so our localities start to take on a, a sameness across the entire world. Right. And that's something that he says is particular to the techno scientific system. And then this system is also globalized and that it's now emerging everywhere. Um, you know, that, that same coffee shop is is everywhere across the world, um, and so he says this contemporary technique is defined by um, informational technologies. Right, our world is increasingly disembedded from our local realities and and determined by the you know the global moves of like data and finance. Um, and so I, I think. That this is really important, and I think like part of the reason I'm giving you all this background is because I think this is exactly the question that we need to be to be referenced. Re- we need to be figuring out in order to determine like are we in a substantively different moment now than when Santos was writing at the end of the 20th century? Um, because what he's offering us here is he's saying like in prior historical moments, people created what he called intentional objects, right? They created the things that were necessary for life. Um, And, and then by the end of the 20th century, there, the objects that we have, the things that we use, the things that we're creating aren't necessarily directed towards our immediate needs. Um, Right there, the objects that we have are set free from the need to respond to anything in the real world or the dynamics of particular locations or contexts, right? My computer isn't created to do anything like immediately relevant to my, you know, my, my localized life, right. My computer, it allows me to move throughout the world. It's not responding to like a particular context. Um, and he says the proliferation of these techniques has produced a tendency towards a coordinated control of society, right. Towards the subjugation of people by smart machines towards the elimination of the capacity for critical thought, right? Which is like (laughs) pretty prescient, I think, 20 years ago um, for what we're living through today. Um, So even though I think often Santos seems at pains to separate himself from a kind of Marxism, right? Because I think at the time he's... he's, um, he's trying to separate himself from maybe like a vulgar and deterministic or dogmatic Marxism at the time. He doesn't use the language of Marx. He is like painting a really powerful picture of, you know, what we might call the universalization of the commodity fetish, right? Where, Where we've lost our own capacity for subjectivity in the face of the subsumption of the entire world to the, you know, what Marx calls the automatic subject of capital. So, in that sense, um, it's hard to answer your, so that's a very long sort of background to try and answer your the question that you pose, which is, you know, is, um, you know, how would we extend Santos' um, analysis into the world of today? And I think what I just did was try to do that, right? I think that he's pulling out dynamics that are already present and that are sort of shockingly already present at the end of the 20th century to um, explain a world that we live today at a much greater level of intensity, right? Like all of this, you know, our, our world I think is even just much more disembedded than it was 20 years ago. I mean, as, you know, as as, um, you know, if we look at the examples of just what we've lived through in the last year year and a half or two years, you know, the capacity to continue to move a society almost, you know, largely based in information, you know, when the society is, you know, largely shut down for the lockdown that we've lived through, I think says a lot about um, the way that our our capacity and our mechanisms for socialization have been disembedded from a localized context. And so in a sense I think that we could certainly um, and ought to and need to develop we need to, I think that his the framework that he offers us is already previewing the world that we live in today, although I think even he would probably be surprised by the or I guess maybe he predicted right the increasingly totalizing nature of the technical scientific informational milieu that he starts to characterize at the end of the 20th century
1: yeah so i think lots of room for people to take his work and and apply it and you know draw out some of those connections i I imagine probably a lot of people writing in portuguese have already started work on that but now uh, english speakers can get in on it uh too with having access to the the text and um the you mentioned marxism and how he you know incorporates some of those ideas and that's one of the things that you know i really noticed reading this is that this is this is like one of the most citation dense things that i've read in a while that he's just constantly like digesting the ideas of this huge range of different thinkers including you know folks that i'm familiar with when i see the you know the name and the citation and then people i haven't heard of people that are you know writing in other languages that i don't speak and i haven't encountered and he's he's taking all this this stuff from so many different directions across a really broad swath of history as well that he's citing stuff going back you know decades and then up to to the present when he's writing and he's sort of like I said, digesting all of this and putting it together into his own perspective that engages with and incorporates all these things without being kind of a, a doctrinaire follower of one or another school, like a, a Marxist or, or whatever.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I can tell you as a translator, that was one of the biggest challenges of this work because he's. Uh, interpreting all these people into Portuguese. So (laughs) just in a logistical sense, and there was a lot of, I mean, I think just to repeat what you're saying, the breadth of his knowledge of philosophy, of theory of geography, like you're saying spans continents and spans, you know, more than a century. And so I think that's why this work was such a challenge to translate because I had to chase down like all of those citations read them in their, you know, in English, where I could find them to make sure that I could understand the concepts that he was writing about. Um, and so had to really go through the process of learning, not only not only deciphering what he was saying and, and try and interpret it and make it legible to an English language audience. But in order to do that, I had to read so much of, of the philosophy that he's referencing. Um, and it really is a rather awe-inspiring intellectual project that he was engaged in
1: yeah i was just imagining that you could do like a graduate seminar where you just you read this book and then you just chase down his major references and you know find those people and you know just doing that would be like this this really stimulating graduate seminar project both for understanding the ideas he's talking about, but then also just like practicing that form of scholarship.
0: Totally. I totally agree. Yeah. And, and seeing exactly how like this, this work that he's doing of moving concepts forward, right. Taking somebody's idea, taking it up, trying to grow it a little bit, you know, putting these, these different authors in conversation with one another in a really explicit way in order to get to the, you know, the next step basically is exactly the method that he's trying to work out. So that graduate seminar that you're proposing, I think is like exactly the kind of work that he's trying to inspire, right? How do you actually, you know, go inside of a conversation in order to unfold it one step forward.
1: Yeah. And my department is unfortunately undergrad only. So it's a free idea putting out there for listeners who teach uh, at the graduate level. Um, so in, in your last answer, you started to talk a bit about your approach as a translator. So I now want to move in to uh, talking about that. And I want to pick up on something that you said back when you were explaining this concept of technique, where you mentioned, you know, in the original Portuguese, he uses the term technica, and then you referenced how some other authors have had similar concepts that they've used other words uh, for, you know, drawing on... the you know, ancient Greek versions of the word and stuff, but you chose to translate it with, you know, a fairly common English word. And that seemed to be your your approach throughout the book, that you weren't keeping a whole bunch of his terms in Portuguese. And that's different than you often see people translating these kind of dense theoretical texts. Uh, you know, if you look at the typical English translations of, you know, Foucault or Derrida or something where they keep a whole bunch of these French terms where the, you know, the idea being this is a very specialized thing. And so we're going to have this special, uh, word for it, but you, you really found English words to use for just about all of what he was talking about. So I'm curious about your, your decision process behind that, you know, how did you go about deciding what things you were going to translate when it comes down to this, some of this really technical terminology or terminology that he's using in a technical kind of sense.
0: Mm, I, that's a really interesting question. I I struggled a lot um, over how to, how to translate a lot of these concepts. And I think ultimately there's two, two different, two different um, things that drove every decision about translation. And one is legibility of the text. You know, I think this is such a difficult text. It's a difficult text to read in Portuguese. It's a difficult text to, it's an extremely difficult text to translate. And I think that that's true of his writing in general, that I felt that it was an important, um, responsibility as a translator to have the work be very legible in English, to make it sound like English, um, And to, in order to really have it be read and understood. And so um, that was one of the, you know, so I, I, you know, I translated the book and I went over it many, 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 many times to constantly compare what he's saying in Portuguese with how I represented it in English. Um, You know, and it, you know, translation is always, I think, in part a work of interpretation. And so I tried to stay true to the text while departing from the actual linguistic formulations whenever necessary to make it legible to an English speaking audience. Because I think it's so important that given its complexity, it be really legible. And then secondly, every one of these concepts is he's in comfort. I mean, maybe everyone is a overgeneralization, but I think, I think it might be true. He's in conversation with many different languages. And so, and so what I did when I was translating um, the different uh, philosophical concepts was I looked for the way that they were most, the people that he was in conversation with were most commonly translated into English or if they were writing in English, wrote in English. Right. So one of his major um, for, for technique, technique, technica, technics the person that he was the most in conversation with was like, um, who is often whose, whose use of that term is often translated as technique. So I tried to find the, the, and, and I think that, um, given the amount of different citations that he has there, and I think given the way that he presents it as a concept, it would be very easy for people to go and find all of the other ways that that word is put forward. Um, you know, I think there could be an argument for translating it in a different way. But I thought that I tried to find the way that was the most that was most commonly most directly in in, with whom he was in conversation. And I think, you know, this word means something a little bit different to everyone who's using it also, right. And so that seemed to be the one that was truest to the way that he was using it.
1: Okay, well, so this this is clearly a a huge project and a, a big accomplishment uh, to get this book out. So, what are you working on next? Uh, what's your your next big project?
0: I mean, I what I'm working on now is is exactly this working through this question that you, um, the one of the most recent questions that you put to me, which is this question of like, what is the meaning of Santos for today, right? Now that this book is finished and we can elucidate these, com- these concepts, I'm working on writing about what these concepts mean and what they can um, contribute to our world today. So, you know, if we look around the world, you know, as not only the manufacturing sector, but the service sector is being automated, you know, nearly half of the world's 8 billion people have a smartphone, our financial, medical educational, informational, social lives are directly mediated through screens and networks. Um, and every one of these interactions is subjected to surveillance by corporations in the state who are consciously and openly, you know, manipulating these locations of mediation for their own ends of profit-making and, and power concentration. I think, like, Santos's work becomes really um, key, right? It's, like, certainly this these technical shifts, you know, or these technological changes are not unrelated to the social decomposition that we're living through that's evident in like the crisis of political representation, cancel culture, skyrocketing rates of mental illness and, you know, the collapse of the rent-based global economy. And so I'm trying to kind of use Santos's, I'm I'm working on trying to use Santos's framework for um, understanding all of the very rapid shifts that we're living through today over this last couple of years, over the last decade. And um, also inspired by his work, you know, asking, or I guess asking, like, if we can examine these changes through this framework of understanding a technical history rather than a technological one, you know, how can we avoid falling into a technologically deterministic reading of them? And then asking these questions, like, what kind of society seeks the mechanical moderation of all of our social relations? (laughs) Um, and how might we build a different kind of society? Those are the questions that I'm investigating now.
1: All right. Well, those are, are some exciting questions. We'll be looking forward to seeing the kind of answers that, uh, you can come up with. So thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for, um, or I hope that people read the book and and start to use Santos's work more commonly in Anglophone geography.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something that's that's worth some deep engagement. So you just heard a conversation with Brenda Belletti, translator of The Nature of Space by Milton Santos, published this year by Duke University Press.